Welcome to the UCM. We're your tour guides, Zan Peters and Joe Semino. And we're going to be taking you through our humble little museum's collection. The exhibits may or may not be real, but the stories sure are. Enjoy your visit today at the Uncanny County Museum. walking down the street the other day and you know i'm really getting to love you know i think the type of stuff that i just see on the streets of boston right like yeah you know the other day i was like just walking down the street and suddenly there's just these enormous turkeys just walking down the street in brookline massachusetts and it's like wow this is some real new england core And oh my god. <laughs> and then um the other day I'm walking down the street and I like you know, I, I try not to be out so much, but now my school has this thing where I have to get tested for coronavirus twice a week, otherwise I lose my on campus sure, sure. job. And Ooh, okay. you know, I'm walking down the street and you know me, I when I see people outside, I'm always curious at what the street fashion is. And I of see course. this very striking, tall, young man walking down the street wearing a cape. And I get excited because I want capes to be more socially acceptable. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. I and mean, not, I feel yeah, that. Yeah, you know, like, and not like, because like when we were in Italy, we would see mm-hmm. people, you know, like wearing the military cloak thing. And I have to yeah. say, I was, I hated how much I was kind of into that uniform. Like, it was pretty cool. I was like, <laughs> oh my God. Like, you know, I, I never could picture myself walking around in the US and those, you know, the combat boots and the, that like digital um, camo print. Yeah. yeah. That, that's my real reason for not joining <sighs> the military, right? You know, is the, the, the <laughs> lack of fashion post 1978, you know? I mean, I guess. <laughs> Unless you want to be like Nike and have their, you know, desert boots that were basically just Air Force Ones. Yeah, yeah. But anyways, so I see this guy and he's wearing like, and it's embroidered as far as I can tell. It's like mm-hmm. red and okay. gold. And it's one of those Ooh. short capes. Like it really just drapes down uh, to the elbow, right? Like, like a, Ooh, a nice. almost a little shorter than like a work cape uh, from over the garden wall. Okay. Yeah. 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 Like kind of like one of those uh, Civil War uh, length capes. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. Just like it's this very interesting triangular profile it gives you. And I'm very fascinated by this. And yeah, I'm just watching this guy cross the street and I'm just think, and I'm getting a little closer to him at this point. And as I get closer to him, I realize, oh, he's wearing a Christmas tree skirt around his neck. Uh, oh, <laughs> it is. He's he, yeah. It, what, whatever 
you know, this was not made to be a cape. This was a Christmas tree skirt. Oh, God. I mean, <laughs> you know what? We got to love DIY fashion. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Jesus, that's pretty wild. Pretty innovative. Though. Although now that I look back on this experience, and this is the thought I'm having just now. Did I just see a pimp? Uh, oh. He might have had I mean, a scepter, too. Oh. Okay. Maybe that was another, now that's a power Maybe move. that was another guy I saw wearing some very interesting clothing on the streets. You must be in a very strange section of Boston. <laughs> Are you transported back into time? Is someone going to walk around with a lantern and confront you soon? <laughs> oh, God. Yeah, someone. Yeah, just someone the other day was riding a horse, you know? Screaming, the the <laughs> British are coming. The British are Paul coming. Revere. Who? <laughs> oh my god! Is it more fun to imagine the founding fathers with like stereotypical Boston and Philly accents? <laughs> I never thought of that. <laughs> I always just thought, oh my god, wait, that's so great. <laughs> oh my gosh, how would that sound? Oh my god, way the people. You- Use guys. Use, use guys, the people. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, geez. No, we can thank the Italians for that one. Mm-hmm. But oh, yeah, I guess that was. I mean, but in Boston, I think of. I think of the Irish influence. Like I is is the the Italian influence. I definitely think of as the New Jersey, New York yeah. accent. But sure, I have no sure. idea when that accent originated because, like, mm. when I watch Gangs of New York, Daniel Day Lewis has, you know, that very stereotypical, historic New York accent. But, like, I watch right. that wondering, like, okay, did that accent exist back then? Or, like, because this is, be- this mm. is before. New York gets the huge wave of Italian and Jewish immigrants that I typically associate right. with that accent. Right, right. So I real I really have no idea, I guess, <clears throat> what what that Yeah, I think this is our problem when we start to get into movie reconstruction of past events mm-hmm. and then assuming how things looked or were or spoken. And there's a bit of creative freedom within that. Yeah. Now I'm curious. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah, I was I was listening to I, I was watching a documentary the other night. Um, oh. Also, my face was melting off because I took two instead of one uh, gummies. Uh, oh, so, scandalous. Yes. So yesterday I just kind of took the whole day watching documentaries. You know, I watched one okay. on E.B. Cooper. Oh. Um, the uh, the gentleman that in the 70s hijacked an airplane uh, for two hundred thousand oh. dollars, or sorry, twenty thousand dollars. Was it twenty? I, I don't remember. Um, uh, <laughs> <laughs> a number a of, of sorts. A lot of money. Um, and then jumped <laughs> out of the airplane and was never found oh. and probably died. Um, can I? Can I just say, mm-hmm. you know, when I when I heard this story, I very much envisioned him. Like, or how this was described to me of being like, okay, I got what I want. Bye! <laughs> and just jumping out of the airplane. Like, no parachute, nothing, just straight up like, whoop! 
and then he just <laughs> fell out and never was seen again. Yeah. So is that is that what happened? Was that covered in the documentary? It is possible because <laughs> the documentary is one of those things that you watch and you're like, this is very silly because they're showing people that have all of these theories and all of these mm-hmm. people are... Unfor- have unfortunate stories or trauma in their past, but oh, right. really want to be connected to the legend of D.B. Cooper. And so okay. you're like watching this and you're like watching this lady in Florida, like, and she's like, I, you, you think I don't, I don't know that my, uh, that my late husband was D.B. Cooper? You think I wouldn't have spent the last 23 years of my life doing this if I didn't think it was D.B. Cooper? And and yes, she mm. sounds like the, the worm lady from Spongebob. Oh, no. Yeah, but she's... Th- there's this whole thing of, like, a feeling of you need this to have existed in your past. Like, everybody wants right. to be a part of this cultural legend. And you realize that towards the end, that, mm-hmm. oh, this isn't a... Because it was really coming off as a really dumb documentary. Like, there's this, you know, this sure. guy living out in the in the wilderness in the Pacific Northwest who's a journalist, but he just walks around wearing this bright blue cloak, living in a trailer, you know? Okay. And but he's, like, a D.B. Cooper expert. There's another guy who's just a lonely old Vietnam vet who's walking around through the wilderness expecting to find his body or his parachute one day. And you realize, oh, this isn't a documentary about D.B. Cooper. This is about the people who this is about the the impact that it left on all of these people. Mm, interesting yeah so anyways so i'm watching oh, i quite like yeah that. I'm, I'm yeah it, it, it's an interesting twist on a documentary I, i'm watching that yeah. i'm watching like this other freaky documentary about um this this woman that uh fakes her daughter being sick it's this whole munchausen by proxy um uh, oh, wow. So basically, this was the point I was kind of getting to, although I have touched on something that we are going to be talking about today. Oh, so they're they're interviewing these people on this person's uh, on this on this uh, young woman's mother. And like, you know, this woman was a monster, like, you Mm. know, making her daughter go through cancer treatment, even though her daughter did not have cancer treatment, but just so that she could get the attention and the money you know, from people. Wow. And they interview her family. And I was having a hard time understanding or recognizing their accents. I was like, they sound kind of like Southern, but they also sound Midwestern Mm -hmm. or Canadian. You know? Okay. And then I'm thinking like, oh, wait, are they Cajun? Oh. And I'm thinking like, okay, because the hmm. Cajuns are technically descendants of the Acadians who were from Canada, right. but the French speaking part of Canada. And just like, I was like, yeah, and I just, I did not know where to place that accent. Huh? It, it, it was just an interesting thing because if I heard that in a movie, I don't know if I would know where to place that, even though those right, are their right. real accents. But they're not mm-hmm. stereotypically Southern enough or stereotypically New Orleans Cajun 
enough that I would mm. know where to geographically orient myself. Right, right. Mm-hmm. Huh. Yeah. But then but then the gummies really kicked in. My face was melting off. I threw up everything. <laughs> I worked so oh, hard on dinner no. last night. Me and my roommates hand rolled pasta. Oh. I made lamb meatballs. I made our own bread. Oh. And then just my wow. my other roommate made brownies and just I just I, I threw up everything. So also if I get really dizzy oh. and uh, despondent during this, it's because I I, I think I'm at net I netted negative calories yesterday, I think. (laughs) Oh, no, sad (laughs) Jesus. Well, at least you didn't turn into a rock. Oh, was that also a possibility? Or at least it doesn't sound like you turned into a rock. I want a rock. Well. I want a rock. (laughs) Well, don't rock this boat. Oh. It's funny you say that. Oh, it is? Because we're literally on this boat. Uh Yeah, oh, hey, can you not... Can we not rock the boat? I don't want to make anybody dizzy here. Joe, I have sailing in my blood. You see how much I love striped shirts. <laughs> what a weird... Sa- Hold on, wait. I'm talking about rocking a boat, and now you have blood of the sailors in you. Interesting, interesting. Yes, my, yes, my ancestors are from Central Eastern Central <laughs> Europe, but I feel like I was born to be a sailor. <laughs> That's the Florida arrogance right there. <laughs> But <laughs> no, um, I, I see that. I see that with you. I mean, you you out of, you know, the two of us have the most sailing experience. I have mm. been on two boats. Oh. I quite love being on a boat. Mm-hmm. Um, I have never sailed a boat per se, ah. but I do know quite a bit about boats somewhat. I, I, about I, boats. I, I'm a bit of a, quite a bit about I, I do know a few things about boats. Okay. Not enough. To be an expert on boats, but some. Okay. So, yeah, you might have some questions as of, uh, why are we on water in the middle of an exhibit? And how are we on this massive boat that fits 50 to 100 people on it? And um, all of you with us on this tour, you know, just stay seated, have your life jackets on. The water's only two feet, but, you know, you never know. We still gotta, you know, be careful. OSHA's on our back and whatnot. Mm-hmm. So... Yes, we're on this very old, ancient boat, right? Yes. It looks pretty rickety. It's loud. You know, the the natural wood material, it's not necessarily painted. And uh-huh. yeah. there's some oars sticking out of the sides, two and one main mast in the middle. Now, I'm not exactly quite sure how large this is. Um, the people who constructed this didn't exactly give me anything to go off of. I'm kind of just winging it on this one. <laughs> but... This is uh, from the gracious hands of our Uncanny County Museum's conservators and shipwrights, a potential reconstruction of a warship that would have been used by the Sea Peoples. The Sea Peoples? Yes. Do you do you know anything about the, the Sea Peoples, Zan? Um, only a little bit. I... Okay. They, they came up in an archaeology class I was in. Oh, okay. Fascinating. I mean, basically, like, as as part of a larger lecture on ancient currency. Oh, okay. But oh, okay. I don't really know yeah. enough. I know they show up at some point. Mm-hmm. Nobody really knows who they were. They just kind of yep. pillaged the local towns that they came across and then sailed off. And there's, you know, 
there's like I, I'm also vaguely aware that they're also kind of wrapped up in the the historical confusion as to where Tin came from. Uh, huh. Okay. Interesting. Like, I like didn't know in that sort of like of where where we're trying to understand like how it went from the Iron to the mm-hmm. Bronze Age and like where we're the ancient uh, people's yeah. getting the tin needed to make metal alloys. Right, right. Yeah, there, there, yeah. there's some... I, I, I have some vague recollection of the sea people. <laughs> yeah. Suggested, I mean, uh, for that. Interesting. Yeah, I, I'm gonna... To, to summarize for our for our tour here, and then I'm gonna get way more in depth. Mm-hmm. Um, one of my history teachers put it quite simply when describing them, which was they came from the sea. Okay. They show up. Okay. They would they would wreck shop. Oh. And then they would leave. Wow. And that's how it went. And then they just kept doing it. Like a koala walking into a bar. Weird analogy, but yeah, actually. Yeah, well, <laughs> that's pretty accurate. What happens when a koala walks into a bar? Eats, shoots, and leaves. Ah, uh, mm, that was good. Mm, okay. Yeah. <sighs> so anyways. But anyway. So I'm <laughs> A bunch of people on Hellenistic warships, like the one we are on now. Yeah. They're about, mm -hmm. you know, two feet tall. They have two thumbs. They have little ears, grayish brown fur. They eat eucalyptus. Uh, Okay, see, I'm going to stop you right there. We don't know who the sea people are, and you have not convinced me that they are not koalas. I guess, yeah, you do have a better argument for koalas at this point. Did the sea people have gonorrhea? Oh, sorry, chlamydia. That's why koalas have, are notorious for carrying chlamydia. I'm going to make an educated guess as to given we don't have, we have barely any evidence of their culture. Mm-hmm. I don't know that specific. Okay. But maybe, perhaps. Um, but no, they, they, they're an interesting cold case throughout history. Mm-hmm. And uh, they are something that I am... I describe the sea people as the sea peoples as the mystery that I once solved mm. so desperately. <laughs> but if I was a better historian, I would have dedicated my life to it. Oh. You know what I mean? Like, there's two main mysteries I need proof of. Like, I just need to know if it's true or not. Who the sea peoples were, mm-hmm. and if Bigfoot is real. I need those <laughs> things proven. I just that's it. That's all I want, and then I'm good. Um, and this is how close we've kind of come for them. So this ship that we're standing on right now is kind of based off of an ancient Minoan and Mycenaean design, mm. which, yeah, would be similar to a Hellenistic, uh, you know, kind of the warships you see throughout Rome and Greece, the kind of um, treb- not trebuchet that throws things, <laughs> um, uh, trireme, that's ah. it. I'm blanking on my titles today. So, you know, similar in an idea where it's kind of parallel on both sides. You have the bows moving up, curved, Mm -hmm. or in this case, curved, because in those it's not, and oars in one main mast. Except this would be a lot smaller than a a typical uh, later Greek period warship. And it would have had the technology to ram, but it's unsure whether or not that would have been used. But one thing that's indicated on on our ship here that we have are these bird motifs and specifically at the main masthead of the bow but mm-hmm. rather than some of the old of the more recent illustrations done of it where they 
quite literally depicted an eagle or a seabird of sorts. Uh-huh. This is a bit more abstracted as to what you would have seen in Greek pottery uh-huh. and Egyptian sculpture. And so where this ship was taken both in, in practice of making from the uh, recent recreation of of the Argo mm-hmm. from the, you know, famous Greek story or famous, you know, Greek myth of Jason and the Argonauts. Although I'm not actually sure if that's a myth or a legend or if it's actually real. I'm going to go with like, it probably happened, something similar. Something because like of it. the Something like it. I don't think there was actually golden, you know, wool or fleece involved or gods, but who knows? I mean, one of the, just with the lore and the history of the Mediterranean, it's been suggested that yeah. Isis or sea silk might have oh, been the origin of the golden fleece. Because that would have been oh. something that looked like yeah. golden woven wool. Okay, so, I like this theory. Yeah, so there, <laughs> but there, uh, you know, some that there yeah. is. While we maybe shouldn't take folklore and history literally, and th- this is something I, I yeah. think I'll be yeah. talking about later as well. There, there are things that we can look into because these, mm-hmm. you know, these stories don't come from nowhere. You know, even if exactly, even if you know, oh, this culture said they saw a dragon or whatever right right okay well they didn't need to literally see a dragon there can be yeah so many other things mm -hmm. that the dragon can represent 100 percent, 100 percent. yeah i mean i think this is an interesting this is an interesting kind of bridge to that exact thing where yeah it doesn't have to be so literal and in that case but we know that the technology was there and the type of ship that they used would have been now were these were these sea people or seeple as i'm going to call them from now on did the seeple okay. were these the people that used Greek fire? Um, I'm not entirely sure, to be honest with you. Okay. It's not necessarily stated, or from the sources that I saw, it wasn't necessarily stated. Okay. Um, but well, we also, you know, don't necessarily know where they come from. Hmm. But we do know they were experts at fighting on the open water. Wow. And they could have advanced enough ships to cross the Mediterranean yeah. because. You know, we have sources and, of course, imagery of depicting ancient um, kind of Mesopotamian ships mm-hmm. or Levantian ships and Egyptian ships, which are a different design and more based for cargo and economic purposes. Yeah. And, of course, if you have a ship that's based for, for trade, it's not meant for war. Mm-hmm. And warships are sleeker, tend to have more uh, room for oars and for movement and ability to kind of, you know, navigate yeah. the seas and open, kind of like, you know, your Viking ships. Yeah. I think that's a good way to kind of see this reconstruction as mm-hmm. kind of a more Mediterranean version of a Viking ship. Okay, yeah. And I guess also in, in this period of antiquity, unless we're, like, talking yeah. about, like, the Pacific Islands, like, I typically right. think of sea navigation at this point is mostly stays inside of land, you know, without... Yeah, the pre-invention yes, of the so. compass, or you know, a, or a concept of a, a modern concept of yeah uh, navigation. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, yeah, because it's I, you know, most Mediterranean peoples are traveling around the coastlines, and if you're in the Aegean, yeah. you know, you move down to Turkey or modern-day Turkey, and you're going into kind of Palestine, Israel, and moving around the Arabian Peninsula and into Egypt, yeah. and you can kind of follow the coast, and you'll find someone to raid, right? Um, 
But and I want to and I want to draw our attention to ancient Egypt because they play a very important part in this story. Okay. Now, for starters, we do not know who these people were, mm-hmm. and there are a lot of theories, mm-hmm. there are a lot of ideas, and there are a lot of possibilities in terms yes. of locations where they were from. But you know, just like when we had our trouble making this reconstruction, mm-hmm. what ends up happening if you make too bold of assumptions or you go into sort of like, oh, okay, well, we knew that this is what it looked like in one depiction of a drawing. Like, for instance, how we know that they had a bird motif. Mm-hmm. And you find out that people will tend to emphasize that and almost misrepresent it. Because if you only have missing pieces of things, how do you know that's exactly what it was? Right. And so with this story, too, I'm going to, unfortunately for, you know, everybody, we have to keep it kind of vague, but that's literally all we have. Mm -hmm. And so with the case of ancient Egypt, they were directly involved with encountering the Sea Peoples enough to be attacked, and specifically around 1276 to 1178 BCE during those moments. And it is a theory and kind of given to them that the it's it's potentially possible that the sea peoples are kind of what aid the end of the a bronze age collapse in 1250 to 1150 bce mm. um originally they were thought to be the main cause but i think it's now more associated that they're the they're an accompaniment yeah know? and with the raids on egypt they they really kind of start to hit the Hittite Empire as well as the Egyptian Empire and towards the coastline. So right at the Nile Delta, there's fertile land, of course, right there because of all the soil building up. Mm -hmm. And so they were kind of moving in and attacking the coastal cities and regions. Um, And there's a great quote that was put on a a large uh, stele or the large monolith Mm -hmm. that I think was specifically from... There's so many. These guys, it's written so many times. Uh, throughout history, especially Egyptian history, but under Merenpepta, or Merenpepta. My ancient Egyptian is really weak, everybody. I apologize. How dare you? But this this was quite literally, the, the quote translated is, they came from the sea in their warships and none could stand against them. Ooh, that is... That's pretty... That yeah, is, that's I like... Mean, that's ooh. <laughs> well, it's the, the, yeah. this whole thing of like, you know, with whenever there are these ancient civilizations that... We mm-hmm. don't really, you know, that there there is no uh, descendants or confirmed descendants. There's no, we don't know who they were. We only know of no. them from their, you know, contact with other people. It's like. Exactly. It's like, it, well, uh, you know, a, a big thing for us when we try to understand other ancient civilizations that did not either have monument making or did not have written right. language, or they did and it was destroyed via subsequent conquests. Like, you know, um, like we know of Genghis Khan because mm. other people wrote about him. And typically they were writing about him from the point of view of, you know, people in uh modern day China and all the way to, you know, modern day Iran. Yeah. That he's (laughs) a genocidal uh, maniac. And we don't really have that internal story that's as a primary source Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that can, you know, paint him as, uh, you know, a a national empire builder. So 
you know, with, with all mm-hmm. with all of these people, we're, we're sort of seeing a similar thing here, except we have even less information than we do about Genghis Khan. Exactly. And this is actually, yeah, this is a similar situation where you have one group of people mm-hmm. who, of course, have the civilization kind of booming at the time yeah. and a few others as well who are also writing about them, but not as much. Like the Hittites were writing about the Sea Peoples, but it was like the exact same thing that the Egyptians were writing. They yeah. came from the sea, they came in the ships, and they raided stuff. But but that that would that would seem to cons- that w- that would seem to confirm their existence in a in a way that we don't really. This is what separates them from like the Atlanteans, where exactly exactly yeah, they're not mythical creatures. Yeah, where or mythical the Atlanteans beings. are from a single source or from what Plato. Right. Yeah, Yeah, which even Plato, I think, was making a reference to another work that has been lost to time. So even Plato's is like a reference of a reference. So we have no way of confirming those things. Typically, when you want to confirm historical events, you do kind of need it to come from two cultures. And, you know, if you're getting this from both the Egyptians and the Hittites, you can at least say, okay, Mm -hmm. this was... This was something that happened and was not purely a result of the Egyptians wanting to control a certain narrative or what have you. Exactly. You're getting it from multiple sources across the Mediterranean. Of course, that they're they are affecting different civilizations. And I mean, that's the thing. I, I, I will hold off on my like. I think the outrageous theories on it, but, but I really, I really think these were a different, um, like what, that they were like, different. What, what, what are the outrageous? I mean, is this like a Columbus? <laughs> well, like, is this like I, a I really, level no conspiracy I, again. No, where... no, 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 no. I mean, look, I, were they aliens? No, no, not possible. Sorry. Oh, okay. I, I will always cater to the idea that the, you know, we know the earth has been here for a while Mm -hmm. and written history only goes back so far. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Written history goes back only so far. So it's possible there's civilizations just like this one. We don't know much about, and we don't know how long they've existed for. Yeah. I mean, I once heard someone say it like the entire plot of Lord humanity is so old that the entire plot of Lord of the Rings could have happened twice. And because we didn't write it down, we don't know. I mean, yeah, that's kind of how I look at it. Exactly the same. Yeah, we're we're into a very foggy part of history where, Mm -hmm. you know, only so many civilizations had writing at this point and writings that survive Mm -hmm. to this day and writings that can be translated and fully understood. Exactly. And the, you know, like, let me let me list off some of the potential candidates for these group of peoples. And it's probably none of them are probably right. All right. But your contestants. Okay. So we have the Sheridan. Oh, the Shekelesh, Luca. Okay. Tersha and Akawasha are some of the suggested ones that were coming from Egyptian logs. Okay. We also have suggestions that it's possibly early Etruscan. Okay. Minoan. Mycenaean. Hmm. Trojan. Okay. Early Italian. Ah. Philistine. Okay. And even early Nuragic tribes, which would be Sardanians, my people. Oh. And I know that one, I've, I've heard theories that that's a very high potential candidate, as well as Mycenaean or Minoan. Interesting. 
with the with the Etruscans, I always think of the Etruscans as uh, mountainous tribes. Like they did not. Well, yeah, because they're inland. <laughs> yeah, they they're like w- when you are in Italy, you will see the Etruscan settlements are typically in the mountains away from the rivers. And then the, yeah. the big glorious cities that are built along the rivers, you know, the ones that flood all the time because the Etruscans were yeah. like, no, we're not going to build our cities. Yeah. See these unstable yeah. waterways. No, the, all that later stuff is all Roman. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's the thing. And I think it's, I, I again, you you see all of these groups yeah, of people. This is, this and is casting. They're a, all Mediterranean. This is casting a wide net, like exactly. Some of these, like these are like these are groups of people that like like the Philistines show up in the Bible. You, yeah, you know, like these are, <laughs> literally. <laughs> you know, they're the Philistines. Like, you know, I don't I don't know what they did to like make people suggest that they were Philistines or Sardanians, like. If they were Philistines, like they were like, <laughs> yeah, as they were leaving. They're like, by the way, all hail Dagon. I yeah, I mean, I think it's it's tough to Fuck say. You, Samson. <laughs> we, we don't have an accurate depiction. I mean, we have the boats. We have an idea of what maybe possibly their boats looked like. But it's so minor right it's only coming from illustrations and because just what this one's modeled after the egyptians egyptian sculptors mm-hmm. who are who are kind of carving in and doing relief sculptures would have been looking at defeated yeah you know sea people's boats and and having kind of a representation from that mm-hmm. but even that's still in fragments yeah you know we we get it of course we have this information from writing mm-hmm. and one of again one of the other writings i think it's actually from the temple of karnak yeah still again by baram ta and this is a longer quote, and I'm, I'm going to pull it up in my notes here and uh, read it to everybody, which is, The princes prostrate themselves, saying, Peace. Not one of nine bows dares raise his head. Tenenu is plundered, while Hadi is peaceful. Canaan is seized by every evil. Ashkelon is carried off, and Gezer is seized. Yenom is made as that which never existed. Israel is wasted without seed. Kor is made a widow of Egypt. All the lands are at peace. Everyone who travels has been subdued by the king of Upper and Lower Egypt. Jesus. Hi there. My name is Colby White, and I'm one of the hosts from Force Football Facts, a podcast where my friend Zachary and I force our other friend Tyrell to give us insights into the game, even though he doesn't know anything about it. We use our humor to bring you weekly football news in a new way that takes fan opinions into account while also helping new fans understand why we love this game so much. You can check us out on our website, forcefootballfacts.com, or wherever podcasts are available. Hope to see you soon. Now, this is referring to the kind of battles that were under yeah. uh, Merimta, as well as, I think, going into Ramses, but I'm not entirely sure. And, yeah, this is describing that exact same thing yeah. of the kind of the areas around Egypt being attacked and then coming back into control. And the yeah. nine the nine bows is what um, Egypt refers to their enemies, usually, mm. as the nine bows. And the, and the Tenen, Tenenu is Libya, just to give us some sort of geographical yeah. location. And that's through, of course, the sources. So there's all, there's all of this destruction and we we yeah. don't entirely know who is doing all of it and nope it could wow did i mean did did the sicilians or the sardanians have their own like you know maritime naval empires or was that just 
Was that put into place like once the Romans arrived? No, no, they would have been seafaring peoples, especially the Sardinians and Sicilians because they're islands. Mm -hmm. I mean, the the Nuragic civilization was around for a real long time Mm -hmm. and also probably would have had contact with early Etruscans as well as Greeks coming into the area. Um, I'm not in, I'm not an expert or even really familiar with their kind of maritime uh, vessels, mm-hmm. but I imagine it's a similar kind of Minoan design because it seems like the more uh, open water seafarers had a more kind of like I said this Viking you know early early trireme design mm-hmm. that's designed for both open seas and close uh shallow waters because that's also another important thing these boats were able to go very very close to the shoreline in fact being able to um to dock or um to beach to coming into beach and be able to go right onto the sand okay so it's like this this is like d-day but happening like three thousand years ago (laughs) yeah literally i mean imagine you're just kind of hanging out on your sea town in egypt and all of a sudden these crazy boats come out of nowhere and just start attacking you and then they leave you know the weird thing is like not by these same people but Uh like this was happening in the mediterranean you know closer to now than i think we think of like the yeah. Ottomans and the, I mean, specifically, like, a, a lot of times, uh, the, the people from present-day Algeria, uh, Algeria were, you know, raiding the uh, Mediterranean, oh, yeah. up and down the Mediterranean coastline, like, specifically, like, France and Italy, like, oh, even yeah. during, during the Renaissance, like, there were, you know, pirates just absolutely obliterating these french and italian towns and Mm -hmm. you know i think we think of the crusades as fairly one-sided in terms of aggression and again i i do not want to sound like i am playing apologetics (laughs) for the catholic church but sure i don't think you can also deny that there were people in north africa in the middle east that were having just as much of a time you know, raiding, pillaging, and mm-hmm. raping along the Mediterranean coast of Europe. That, yeah, you know, that I mean, definitely, sure. like, it gave some people some, you know, Europe had a bit of a chip on its shoulder about the Ottomans. Right. You know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that, I that, mean... that directly leads to the French turning around <laughs> and, you know, really becoming the bad guys of, of that piece of history, but... You know, the French turn around yeah. and colonize North Africa because of that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, not great. Not a good look but for anybody. It's, it is fair. Yeah, no, not at all. But it is fair to say that the Mediterranean is not free of um, piracy. No, it's been happening and for I, literally centuries. But, but I, t- in my head, I look at mm-hmm. that struggle for control of that region as, you know, just like the this this bouncing back and forth of aggression and power yeah. and everything. And you see it with, you know, the Greeks, the Romans, the French, the Italians, the, the Egyptians, the, the Moroccans, like wanting to control the Mediterranean because, you know, from any direction, every time, a, you know, yeah. some naval civilization pops up, they seem to be ready to raid everyone along the coast. Like, just controlling the Mediterranean mm-hmm. seems to be out of self-preservation 
you know? I mean, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's the, it's it's a, both a gift and a curse because it is an economic powerhouse. The Mediterranean provides food. It provides trade routes. Yeah. It's, it's easier to get to and from certain areas, just like we saw with Alexandria. Mm-hmm. You can get boats going in and out from everywhere, but, you know, it's not free of attacks. It's just like if you were to travel on the roads and they weren't protected and people would get attacked all of the time. Yeah. But one one thing, too, that I think is an, is an interesting kind of uh, topic for this is that towards the end of the raids, and this would have been during, like, under, I think, Ramsey III, mm-hmm. and he's sort of fighting back, and the Egyptians are winning and losing battles, yeah. and sometimes they ally with the Sea Peoples, and then they don't ally with the Sea Peoples, and then it's a whole weird— because, like, it's argued that they're, they're technically would have been mercenaries, but they probably weren't, mm-hmm. which means that there's multiple groups of Sea Peoples, so almost like a Viking situation again. Mm-hmm. Regardless, there's one thing that starts to happen, and it's the sea peoples are moving towards the delta and starting to try to colonize. Oh. And not and, and more in the older term of colonization, not necessarily sort of the new world colonization that we see, where it's, go, well, I guess any sort of colonization is bad, let's be real, mm-hmm. but going in and trying to claim land. Right. Which I'm going to kind of propose, I think, a theory in, in this case, too, because this is about the end of the Bronze Age we're looking at here. Okay. So things are changing drastically. Yeah. And people, both in different parts of the world, have really advanced pieces of technology and then kind of still basic ones. Well, this is this is setting the stage. This this period of time is really yeah. setting the stage for we think of this as ancient history, but this is going to set the history of basically the Mediterranean region into motion for where it is now, where Exactly. It will be solidified in, you know, regions, you know, with their different attempts at control. Mm -hmm. Exactly, exactly. And with that, they're trying to claim land. And, of course, they get pushed back by the Egyptians and almost lose, and the Egyptians uh, implement ambushing Mm -hmm. because they could not win one-on-one. They were losing every battle. If if he just attacked with his armies, they would lose. Especially in the in the seas, well, in I mean, sea Egypt, Egypt is not, you know, maybe I'm guessing Egypt maybe didn't have the navy power to take them on, but Egypt was a, you know, a, a, an empire. It was a it was a it was a force to be reckoned with. It, you know, Egypt conquered plenty of its own stuff in its day. <laughs> yeah, let let this be kind of the the sort of um, guide, if you will. Mm-hmm. Egypt is one of the main empires in the region, and they have the most one of the most powerful. Armies. I mean, they go head on head with the Hittites and eventually win. Yeah. So they are not messing There's around. There's a reason of all of these civilizations, Egypt is the one that yeah. we know the most of. Exactly. That's yeah. Exactly. Exactly. So it's like you know they have the technology and the weaponry and the advancements in warfare, and they are losing God. to a group of raiders. So that just shows how powerful these people yeah. are. And yeah, they, so they are. They're moving in and eventually are pushed out, and then we never hear from them again. Hmm. And this is the problem with this situation, and I'm going to kind of lay it out very bluntly here. When the Egyptians wrote about the Sea Peoples, Mm -hmm. they wrote about it like you would refer to them to a friend Mm -hmm. who already knew them. Hmm. So it would be like if I talked about one of our mutual friends, Zan, and kind of like said a name or maybe like halfway through a conversation, right? Where I said, yeah, they're totally super cool. Or like, yeah, they really like to play guitar. Mm-hmm. And I gave you no other details because you know them. Mm-hmm. Because in the Egyptians, 
and the Egyptian peoples and the ones surrounding them knew who these people were. Right. It would not, you would never think to explain that. Exactly. I guess. They didn't have to. They didn't have to, they didn't have to re-explain it. And he didn't have, you know, these, these pharaohs didn't have to re-explain on their tombs when they won because the people reading it would have known. Right. And the gods in this case would have known who these people were. Yeah. But for us, that's a downfall. Mm-hmm. So it is it is literally the cases of watch your tenses because if you don't have the right, you know, voice in your yeah. writing, it will come back to bite you thousands of years later. Because if we would have had more specifics, this would have helped. Yeah. It's like if I if I can make a dumb analogy, this is to me, it seems like that this is almost like watching any old comedy that makes a reference to something that they expect you to know what it was. Because if you were watching this in the time that you were watching, meant to watch it when it came out, you would have gotten the joke. Like in in the same way that Bugs Bunny is like, you know, we think of all these things as just weird, uh, completely idiosyncratic things to the Warner brothers cartoons but they're actually references mm-hmm. to other things that would have been contemporaneous with them. Right. Or you, you could say the thing, same thing about Monty Python. Like, you could say the same contemporary mm, things true. now about, I don't know, like meme humor. Just it's everything. Yeah, everything is fair. so referential. So specific. And then, like, you try to explain it to someone outside of that um, culture. It's, it, it's, it's yeah. completely gone. You know, there's, and I think this is kind of what you're describing. Yeah, it's it's exactly that. Mm-hmm. It's a very similar kind of a situation. And it becomes unclear. And unfortunately, we're left with these questions. And we're left with having to reconstruct a boat yeah. that potentially isn't even correct. Right. There, There's a high potential that the thing we made here, even though we poured hours and hours and hours of research into it and have a very close idea, mm-hmm. it could be totally wrong. You know, yeah. it's just there's there's certain things that historians and archaeologists will get right because we have motifs and in our mm-hmm. history and different things that show up and we can kind of narrow things down. But at the end of the day, you know, when you don't have that evidence, it's just left as a mystery. And that's kind of the case, like I was mentioning before, where I don't really want to try and 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 reveal too much because, you know, most of the historians who have dedicated their lives to this argue with each other mm-hmm. on who's right. Because neither one of them can prove to each other who's right versus the other because there just isn't evidence yet. And Mm -hmm. maybe we'll get some and maybe we won't. I mean, it is one of those things that you could say maybe we'll never know. And maybe that's almost like kind of the point of this, that we we can't know if this is one of those things that is good as 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 much as we've been able to refine our view of Mm -hmm. the past and improve on our knowledge of archaeology and anthropology that. Yeah, it's just this uh, the this this saga of history that we can only know so much about. There's there's a limited amount of information. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I I agree, and I think it's it's unfortunately the struggle. It's like I said, I'm I want to know about this and Bigfoot, and I don't <laughs> ever think I will, and that's I have to come to terms with this. Uh huh. For me, if I had to make my own assumption and guess and almost theory, if you will, you think they're the Sardinians. <laughs> I, I would I really okay I think they're Mycenaean or they're Minoan okay. in all honesty because of the history to the both warfare piracy and in general um 
technology available and is is quite but see even that i'm unsure because my theory in them is that they were moving into egypt is specifically the nile area to get away from whatever it was that they were losing oh because i I truly believe there were a group of these peoples i don't think it was one group i really think it was either tribes or multiple clans similar to what you get with kind of vikings maybe united under one group especially because they were being hired off to different areas like some were working with the hittites some were working with the egyptians and they would fight each other so i i think that and of course you know my opinion means nothing because i don't have necessarily all of the facts but I, i i really think that they're an unknown group potentially around that area of Mycenae and um, Minoan cultures that were escaping something. Mm. Because it's potentially possible that they were advanced in a very high-end culture, especially given the, you know, amounts of warfare and technology available because navigating the Mediterranean even that early is still tough. And I think that it's just mysterious that they were trying to claim land, whereas earlier they weren't. Mm. I, that you do raise a really interesting point that I guess I hadn't considered with them before. It's like, I mean, for all we know, is like you know, just the Cyclops is living on that island or something. That's just what I assume was. <laughs> I just always assumed all these ancient <laughs> Greek islands were just populated yeah. by Cyclopses. Um, but yeah, that does raise an interesting point because when you have an expansion of an empire, I guess there is the assumption that you are trying to get wealth and resources beyond what can be provided by your locale you know yeah you are you know an urban center you are going to want to take over farmland to feed everybody um exactly you know if if you are being encroached upon and you need resources to fight back you are going to need something from outside some some sort of external yeah uh supplement that's that's a very interesting um yeah that, that's that's an interesting thing and a, and a side of uh this this uh colonization that i don't normally think about yeah i mean i think this again this is something i i i want to research so much further into this if i could write a book about it i will mm-hmm. and i'm going to try i guess <laughs> but um it's, it's it is something that i you know when doing some research onto this and, and of course presenting our tour here it's the question that i had because originally when i first learned about them i thought of them as just the sort of mediterranean vikings mm-hmm. and it's more complicated than that it just is yeah. it's they're not as mysterious in the sense of like unknown, unnamed, they're aliens or they're, right. you know, Atlanteans. Because I think that that cheapens a lot of things. Yeah. But I but I won't discredit that they're just an unknown people we never heard of. And that's potentially the the case. And yeah. I think I think the reason they're they were trying to invade so hard towards the end and losing is that reason. Because what what do you have to lose when you need land? Mm. And it's a it's a haunting mystery, and I think it's just I don't know something we're gonna either have to wait and see, or we potentially will never know. Yeah, I mean the this actually kind of dovetails into what oh. I'd like to talk about today. So if we can oh absolutely exit off this boat because I'm kind of getting oh. even though like I said earlier <laughs> I'm sailing in my blood I also yeah. do kind of get like those those headaches being on boats just rocking back and forth too much so let's leave this yeah let's get on okay yeah and then let's just plank on here uh yeah thank you thank you watch your step watch your step oops we lost one person fell into the water 
Well, they'll, they'll catch up later. Let's keep walking. So, um, this room in the Uncanny County Museum, um, this was, this, re this was a bit of an investment as well, but for different reasons. Oh. If you walk in, you will okay. notice everything is covered in gold. Whoa. Hey, I can see myself. Yeah. Wow. Yes. Uh, Zan, how much did this cost? <sighs> Oh, you'd love to know, wouldn't you? I would. Um, well, actually, not as much as you would think, because gold, actually, one of the truly amazing properties about it is it can be, you know, hammered to point less than 0.1 micron thick. Oh, that's right. Yeah. yeah. So really, like, a, a piece of gold the size of, like, your thumbnail can be hammered out to the size of a tennis court. No. Yeah. Like, no way. Go, well, we're, we're talking about, like, a, cup, <laughs> that's crazy. a couple of atoms in thickness like gold wow. has you know some truly remarkable properties it does you know it does not oxidize as other metals do it's very malleable yeah and, and as i kind of wanted to demonstrate you know you can get it into you know ba like four millionths of an inch thick when you're gilding oh wow it. so Yes, it would cost some bit of money to gild the inside <laughs> of this room, but not as much as you would think. And we'll talk about it later. Um, we'll also talk oh, okay. about why I also may have uh, relinquished our paychecks for a couple months. Oh, great. Yes. But um, <laughs> since we are in this golden room, I would like to talk about another uh, quasi-lost civilization. And that is El Dorado. Ooh. Mm -hmm. okay. So what do you know about El Dorado? Well, I remember the movie. Yes, the, 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 the DreamWorks masterpiece. The one with the, uh, the, the, <laughs> the very, very... Uh, yeah. Yeah. Very sexualized female Yeah. Lead. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but I remember that, and I remember actually studying and trying to find out some secrets about the 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 lost city. Is it a lost city? I feel like it's a lost city of El Dorado, and it's kind of conquistador origins. And of course, I don't remember exactly the full thing. I do remember there was a lot of uh, Spaniards, mm -hmm. you know, enacting manifest destiny, trying to find this lost city, mm -hmm. and then never finding it. Um, how does that sound? How do I do? Yeah, pretty, pretty close, actually. The the thing okay. about El Dorado that I think why I think as far as lost civilizations, the way that we can kind of talk about El Dorado sort of in the same breath that maybe we can talk about the sea people or Atlantis or something else like right. I would kind of hate to, you know, just talk about the in in that same breath, I would kind of hate to talk about a real civilization that was conquered and destroyed by the Europeans when they, uh, you know, took over. Because I don't think that's necessarily our theme today. Mm -mm. I think no. what I kind of wanted to talk about was the mythology. Um, and then maybe at a later oh. day, we can also, you know, talk about these very interesting uh, and completely unique uh, civilizations that occurred in South America. Oh, absolutely. But basically the story of El Dorado uh, goes back to about the uh, 1530s. 
and there's a legend. This is after the um, the conquistadors have arrived in South America. They are there to, you know, they are they are not there to make friends. They are not there to trade. They are there to take over, enslave, and pillage. <sighs> Um, oh so God. this is a case of we know exactly who the culprits are. Yeah. That part yeah. is very different. You know, and there's an incredible loss of human life and culture, and it's truly unspeakable and disgusting mm-hmm. to really try to try to e- even just imagine what what this was and what this represented as far as you know all of this all of this progress of civilization on both sides and this is what it was reduced to just this uh absolute slaughter right. and abuse of at the at the mm-hmm. hands of the Spaniards in South America but there there is this they they come across the South Americans and you know in the best case scenarios with the best intentions, they wanted to convert them to Christianity. And in the worst okay. case, you know, they wanted the resources that South America had to offer. Right. Cause you know, first of all, they come across these people and their immediate impulse is, Oh, these are primitive, unsophisticated, uncivilized people. And, <sighs> um, we can conquer them with ease with our superior weaponry. Um, we right. have horses, we have guns, it's, um, and, and, you know, metal swords and everything. But one thing is that they sort of miss, one of the many things that they misunderstood <laughs> about the South American civilizations, um, where many of them treated gold with a different kind of reverence than the Spaniards did. The Spaniards were doing this specifically to enrich Spain. You know, Spain hmm. post 1492 wants to build this basically a catholic empire right you know independent of columbus discovering america in 1492 um there there was this push to grow the grow spain and grow catholic influence yeah and you know part of once they did discover the south america and you know, North America, but especially South America, there was an understanding of, oh, this is where we can fund this. This is how we can get rich. Right, right. Um, Because, you know, it just seems like there were these people living there that just seemed to have gold and seemed to use it (sighs) in what the Spanish thought of as wasteful ways. So there there was this Hmm. story called El Hombre Dorado, the Golden Man, um, which got shortened to oh. El Dorado, where it was said that a king could cover himself in gold dust and then washed it off in a lake. And then the locals would throw all of these um, gold offerings into the lake as part of a ritual. Hmm. And this was so tantalizing to the Spanish because they already understood that there was lots of precious minerals and metals to be found in South America. There were lots of regions rich in silver, some in gold. Uh, summon emeralds, you know, this is, you know, part wow, of, yeah. the, this is part of the resource extraction that unfortunately continues to this day in South America. Yeah. When they heard about this and they saw how the South Americans were using gold, which was 
not for currency. Crucially, put a pin in that. Remember, they are not using gold as currency the way the Spanish do. Okay. Because right, gold right. and precious metals at the time made sense for currency, right? Because it is inherently mm-hmm. valuable and it's when you are, have them stamped out in coins, at least they're somewhat portable. Yeah. But to the South Americans, they had more of a bartering economy, not to say that they did not have a sophisticated economy or complex math, but they did not use currency in that way. Gold was Mm. kind of just used as a purely decorative thing. They did recognize that gold was special and that it did not oxidize and you could work Mm. with it very, very easily. So gold, silver, and platinum were all over their decorations. Right. And their masks, they had, you know, uh, ceremonial uh, clothing and armor that they could decorate with gold. They could kind of use gold for anything because they would have thought of it just as a decorative thing, you know, in the same way that, you know, an oil painting to a European is not valuable because of the oil or the uh, rare minerals used in the pigment. It's valuable because it is mm-hmm. an oil painting. Mm, interesting. Yeah. yeah. And huh. so That's a good when they see this, they do come across a civilization of a people called the uh, Moisca people. And they live in modern Colombia And they do seem to carry out this tradition where um, the region had kind of three kings, not in the way that we would think of. It it was a different system of governments. Two of the kings were kind of like, okay, these are the authorities, heads of state, right? The third king was more like a religious leader, would have been, uh, maybe this is a bad analogy, but kind of like a pope where he is an equal but different type of power. And he was called Zipa. Mm. And he actually okay. did do a variant of this, uh, of, of the ritual that I mentioned earlier. He would be covered in gold dust, and they would throw all of this gold into uh, Lake uh, Guadavita. Okay. And the Spanish rolled over this place, conquered it, enslaved everybody, and took all the gold. Jesus Christ. But there was a problem. <sighs> Aside from the, the obvious humanitarian problem. Not enough gold. Oh? <laughs> well, not only was it... Huh. It was a lot of gold, but not yeah. enough to kind of warrant what the Spanish were doing. The Spanish were incredibly, the conquistadors were insanely greedy and insanely violent. And this was, it wasn't just like all of Spain was full of maniacs, although, you know, the Spanish have, you know, the Spanish like to run in the streets with bulls on the loose, you know? (laughs) Uh, Fair. So, But but the Spanish were not, not everyone in medieval Spain was a sociopath, you know? No, no. Wasn't it like Bartolomeo de Casas was the one that was, like, critical? Yeah. Well, of, yeah um, no, people, people 
with that were contemporaries of Columbus and the later conquistadors were critical of what happened in South America yeah. and were, you know, did show remorse for what was done to the indigenous people. It's not mm-hmm. like they were with, there were Spaniards without humanity, but what you got was a process of self-selection. The type of people yeah. that would go to do this were ruthless. And oh, yeah. this was considered an investment on Spain's part. We are going to cause all of this destruction, but at the end of it, we're going to get so much gold, so much just untapped amounts of gold. Mm. They even tried to dredge the lake multiple times to try to get the gold artifacts off the bottom, and pretty much every time they were unsuccessful in, in getting a good amount of gold, like an amount of gold to warrant the, the efforts that were needed to, you know, dredge an entire lake in South America, yeah. you know, and then try to get gold Jesus. out of it. And to this day, the lake is protected um, that after multiple attempts okay. over the centuries to try and dredge it. Um, wow. Yeah, no, there, there was one time they tried to dredge it. They got about, you know, I think like what would be the modern equivalent of a few tens of thousands of dollars of gold. And then it... Uh, basically, the water all rushed back in and killed everyone on the project. Oh, my God. Except for one guy who did get the gold, but then he died uh, broke. So wow. th- there's a lot of logistical issues here. This is not... Yeah. So th- there's a couple of problems. The Spanish have mistaken the what they see as a frivolous use of gold they perceived that as, oh, gold is so plentiful that they throw it away, which was not really the case. Right. It was this total misunderstanding of a, a, a completely different cultural perception of value. Yeah. Which is not to say that other cultures are not without... From the outside, you can look in on any culture and say, oh, that seems like an irrational placement of value. I do not understand that because I do not come from that culture. Yeah, for sure. Because we're looking at this right now as people in the modern age who do not use a gold-based currency for multiple reasons. And we live in a world where gold's only true value is in making circuit boards, right? Yeah, true. Yeah. and, And, you know, and rich people stuff people that for some reason <laughs> want to waste their money on gold leaf ice cream you know yeah fair so or weirdos that you know are saving up their gold for the collapse of civilization and they're assuming that when civilization collapses we will all still agree that gold is valuable yeah yeah i don't even there, there's a lot of that. assumptions going on anyways but you get what i'm saying like yeah yeah for we sure. are running into two very very different cultures with different perceptions of gold. Um, so what kind of happens is there, because there was not enough gold payout for the conquistadors, the stories of El Dorado kept persisting um, to kind of justify uh, the continued exploration and exploitation of South America. There was like this thing, like, Mm. if we just keep exploring the Amazon, eventually we'll hit pay dirt. But then it turns into something a little different. It actually turns into a way to deliberately get rid of conquistadors. Huh. 
Yes. What do you mean? So conquistadors, because they were, it was kind of this, you know, as I said before, self-selected, insanely violent, not really the type of people you want in Spanish society. A lot of people would just kind of send conquistadors into the Amazon with some expectation that most of them would die. And it was just kind of a way to get rid of excess conquistadors. So hold on. So you're telling me. Yes. That, you know, the people of Spain were kind of sick of these guys, you know, committing war crimes, essentially, and all kinds of other horrendous actions. So because the payout wasn't great, it was kind of like, well, they're committed. Cut your losses, you know. Uh, yeah, 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 exactly. So they, so they were basically just like, well, you could just keep looking and maybe you'll find something and then just kind of sent them away forever. Yes and no. This was happening on both sides. On at least a couple of okay. instances, this was used by the Europeans to get rid of people they did not like. Um, if you're familiar with sure. uh, Francisco Pizarro, um, the, oh, yes, I am, unfortunately. the conquistador that savagely overthrew the Incan Empire and became, you know, the governor of Peru um, yeah. and, or, and Chile, I guess. Um, he had a half-brother, uh, Gonzalo Pizarro, and he sent his half-brother on a wild goose chase on the Amazon. Oh. <laughs> um, Just cuz? Yeah. And he, he, huh. Gonzalo, you know, his, his, uh, his expedition was not entirely fruitless you know a lot of these expeditions are why we were able to have fairly detailed maps of the amazon they do discover a lot of important things uh for for geography okay and you know there's uh some of but you know this is leading to a lot of just death on on the part of the conquistadors dying in the amazon they're starving most of the time uh, and then the Native American tribes that they come into contact with who, you know, will kill yeah. them or be killed by the conquistadors. Right. So uh, what kind of ends up happening is the natives get in on this, and it actually okay. is kind of this way for indigenous people to kind of come, uh, uh, come in and say, oh, hey, if you just follow these directions through the jungles of the Amazon, you'll find El Dorado. (laughs) So it really becomes more often than not used by the natives to keep these Spaniards uh, kind of occupied with trying to find this this city of gold. It's um, as real as much as it is a concept. It's a construct of this thing that they feel like ought to exist and both the Spanish and the indigenous people exploited that. Oh, wow. Yeah. Huh. That is, that is really interesting. Yeah. It's, um, and I mean, it's, huh. it's difficult to say now where outside of the Incan and Mayan empires where there was not written language, it's yeah. very difficult to follow what exactly the ethnography of these regions looked like really a lot of what we have is conquistadors descriptions and oral traditions and we try to find some sort of overlap that can corroborate right right of course but basically these stories of these things that 
even if they did exist, did not exist in the way that they were talked about or we think of them, I think hits on something kind of more interesting in human history, the way that we can look at folklore. Like, we can look at the Bible and be like, okay, this probably did not literally happen. But we can look at it and say, okay, well, what were these people aware of? What, what, how, how can we kind of deconstruct this and look at this in a different way? Because there is definitely real history in this legend somewhere like oh absolutely in the 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 story of cain and abel for instance like Mm -hmm. i don't think it was initially intended that they thought literally oh all of humanity was descended from you know two people and then their uh one son kills another son and then uh you know, you're th- thinking like, it's like, wait, how did they populate the earth if one brother killed the other, but all yeah. of Cain's descendants are e- supposed to be evil? When yeah. in reality, they're the ancient, you know, Abrahamic religion was probably that that leads to contemporary Judaism was probably describing the Canaanites. Yeah. Who were their hmm. kind of you know, competition in the region. Right, right. Yeah, that Cain is just meant hmm. to be the the ancestor of the Canaanites. He's not meant to be, you know, it's not meant to literally explain <laughs> yeah. you know, all of these things. So <clears throat> we have to take all of this stuff with a grain of salt, but I feel like if you dig into any of these things, you do find shadows of the truth of what really happened in history. You know, there's this guy that probably didn't exist called Juan Martinez, who uh, an Englishman, uh, Sir Walter Riley, uh, Raleigh, basically, uh, he follows the writings of this fake made up conquistador into the Amazon (laughs) trying to find, you know, uh, gold, trying to find El Dorado. He makes up a lost city called Manoa, which stays on maps of south america you know for a while even though there's absolutely no evidence that a place called manoa ever existed and then by the 1700s a guy named uh charles marie de la condamine uh basically says okay there probably is not and probably was never an el dorado and from the 17 and 1800s onwards it's generally understood that this is folklore, not history. Okay, that makes sense. But yeah, the weird thing about oh. all of this is, instead of all the gold, you know what the Spanish did find, but they thought was useless? What's that? Platinum. Oh. The, huh. <laughs> platinum, which is even more rare than gold, can be more expensive than gold. But it was wrong color of precious metal. Spanish, even in some cases, yeah. dumped it into the ocean. Oh my God. Yes. <laughs> Jesus. Yes. This is just one big old case of irony. Oh, no, it's platinum, not iron. We're not even in the iron <laughs> age. I knew that. <laughs> yeah, Jesus. <laughs> I couldn't I, resist. This is. 
No, that's you're right. But this is just it's really is just this crazy misconception of values, right? Yeah. What is valuable to one cultural group versus another and just the frauds in in kind of trying to take something that's both not yours and the greed that consumes you because in all honesty, I, I, I'm sorry, but I find it hilarious that they were sending conquistadors off <laughs> into the jungle in search of gold, and they were just so greedy that they were like... They were just fucking with them. Yeah, that, that's hilarious. I'm sorry, but that's fantastic. And just the arrogance that comes with that, and it, it's a good... I, oh, God, it's just... I don't even know how to how to say it in words. It is just so bizarre to me, and... Yeah, I don't I don't know. I think it is interesting how these things shift and how pers- stories change and it's kind of one of my my things I always go to where you know, people in history are just infamous for making shit up all the time. Oh, yeah. It happens way more than people think it does mm-hmm. and people believe it because it just sounds interesting. And in the case of the conquistadors in El Dorado, it sounded interesting and true, so we're going to go for it. Big if true. And I think with, yeah, true. But I think what's important too, and and again, in this whole, I think, uh, dual exhibit is the power behind reconstructing something wrong Mm -hmm. and and going after it, but also, you know, not having all of the information from something and not having all of the perspectives and viewpoints on different civilizations Mm -hmm. that existed well past written records and even whoever wrote about them of course did it in a biased way and that unfortunately affects how we get to see it today yeah and so with these older uh indigenous or south american indigenous civilizations you know we're getting a lot of those written sources from invaders yeah and that changes things that happen and it and it completely manipulates the timeline and even in the case of the sea peoples it's you know you're you're the history we have is not directly from them it's biased it's from the people that both attacked them and that they attacked yeah and so it's of course going to be changed and shifted Mm -hmm. it it really is it's the you know in in the same way that like we need to carefully study our history we need to be critical of our history And it's something that I'm actually really grateful for this museum and for kind of our conversations is we can kind of explore this in an interesting way, I think. And I think be both critical and disgusted a lot of the time, but just that (laughs) history is endlessly fascinating. And I always think it's so much more, it, it can seem so much more interesting than what than what we will write it off as good or bad that there's always yeah. a, a feeling of that the narrative is almost always going to be more interesting than what the simplified uh version <laughs> is for a variety yeah. of reasons sometimes for better sometimes oftentimes for worse in the but <laughs> that you look at these things and you just see people making mistakes and it's not some foreign alien invasion. It is just, you you are watching human error on small and large scale. Yeah, no, I 
I think you're you're right with that one and including you know the conversations held in this museum and the tours we give and I think that history is a complicated thing mm-hmm. and it's something to be critical of to reanalyze to deconstruct and reconstruct and see yeah. and you know you the, the last thing you want to have is you know all of your historical evidence comes from a movie like Gangs of New York <laughs> you know where you're <laughs> or using or that or as your Indiana basis Jones 3, where they find El Dorado but it turns yeah. out the gold was <sighs> what the gold was the gold was knowledge I don't know it was not, yeah, the, the journey was with inside the us the whole time. Was the kingdom of the crystal skull. It was the kingdom of the melted gold that's knowledge within you. So, I leave you with this. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think that about, uh, I, it sums up our tour here. I mean, I, I, the questions left are truly that. I, I, I ask can we remember things that we don't necessarily have right in front of us? And if we don't keep investigating and keeping, you know, cultures that weren't exactly reported alive Mm -hmm. and, you know, actively practicing and actively in the conversation, how are we ever going to have a full picture of our Yeah. I think the, uh, I think if there's something we can leave people with today, it's, there are going to be things in history that are never fully concrete. Um, yeah. Whether or not they did exist or did not exist. More than likely, the Sea People did exist, and more than likely, El Dorado did not exist. Sure. Um, but if these things existed, they're probably not in ways that we can even fathom. Yeah, absolutely. But that is still real in another way, because when things don't exist, they only when when things are no longer tangibly extant they live uh-huh. on in our memories and our collective culture so there yeah. is no one specific thing to return to there is no tangible defined thing anything can be right. so you know whether it's any of these lost civilizations or db cooper they <laughs> are as real as they exist in our minds. And yeah. I hope we uh I hope our visitors today at the museum uh can you know get get to think about that, think creatively and think uh think think more often. Yeah, for sure and question things. Yes. Um well, uh I think that yeah, as you said that about does it for our tour. Um, yeah, if I'd you say would so. like to follow the uh, Uncanny County Museum on Twitter, we are at Uncanny Museum. Yeah, and please tweet at us any questions that you had about the tour, things you would like to see exhibits on, any anything at all, yes. memes, whatever. Yes, or if you happen to uh, know some more information about these uh, these things that, you know, uh, Joe and I <laughs> Joe and I do the best research we can alongside working and going to graduate school. Uh we but we always appreciate hearing from people uh with more uh mm-hmm. input, people that would know more about Absolutely. these specific things we talk about. I actually did find out from one of our listeners uh the answer to a question that we asked a while ago, which was how Greeks pronounced Alexander. Um, and I was told, at least in contemporary Greek, 
it is pronounced Alexandros. Oh, there we go. I also found out Fabulous. That, um the you know how in Greek wing terra is spelled with a p? Yeah. So the same person also told me that it's kind of pronounced with an f sound. It's like patera. Oh. So technically, I guess you could say pteranodon or pterodactylus is pronounced pterodactylus. Archaeop. Oh, I love that. Archaeopteryx. Yeah, that's lost on me. You're gonna have to work on your Greek a little bit. It seems probably more than likely. (laughs) But yeah, uh, if you want to find me, I am Zan Peters at Zanosaurus on Instagram, and I am on Instagram as at Josemino Art. All right, and we have been Zan and Joe from the Uncanny County Museum, and we hope you have great day and you come visit us again soon bye, bye.